Sighted Media, and now part of the Harbinger Network. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. We're a left-wing show about the ideas that drive our academic and political elites. have anything resembling a functioning democracy if you don't have a media that you can trust? I don't think so. You need a good media to be able to make good decisions. Ida B. Wells said it best, quote, the people must know before they can act, and there is no educator to compare with the press. So sorry to our professor friends. We interview you all the time, but you just aren't as important as the average newspaper columnist, which Looking at the average newspaper columnist, that probably explains a lot. So today, we are going to look at the media and especially look at the question of trust. The U.S. has the lowest media trust in the industrialized world. A Reuters survey from last June compared them to 45 other countries, and the U.S. came in dead last. Only 29% of respondents trust what they read and what they watch. In January, a similar poll from Axios put that number at 27%. And they also said this, 56% of Americans would agree with this statement. Journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things that they know are false or are gross exaggerations. So to translate, the average American They don't only think that reporters have some sort of implicit bias. It's a lot worse than that. They think that we're systematically lying to our audiences. The explanations for this mistrust, well, there's a lot of them. You can give a sort of critical sociological one. It goes something like this. There's this widespread breakdown of societal ties, which means we just don't trust elite authority in general. That's following the bowling alone thesis. The political scientist Robert D. Putnam wrote a book in 2000 about how our social bonds are disintegrating. And because of that, we just don't have much of a public sphere. Instead, we have these fragmented and atomized individuals. Then there's a related epistemological story. When people are atomized, it's a lot easier to manipulate them. It's a lot easier to dupe them, which is what happens with fake news, online disinformation, conspiracy theories, Russian bots, and the like. But I think These explanations, they really miss the point. They miss the media's own responsibility in this story. Because come on, the fuck-ups of media elite, it's a pretty long list. Basically, every important political development of my lifetime is a media failure. WMDs, the financial crisis, Trump, Brexit, Russiagate, Afghanistan, all of these stories had terrible reporting. So if you don't trust the media, that seems kind of reasonable to me. But we can't just simply take pot shots at the reporters who make mistakes. We have to ask a more challenging question. We have to ask, why do they keep making these mistakes? Today on Darts and Letters, two media critics take a shot at answering that question. Robert McChesney says, it's all political economy, stupid. Professor McChesney is one of the leading scholars of media structure and media policy. And he tells us about downsizing and corporate consolidation This is all undergirding this entire story because there's just not that much media left to trust. But Michael Tracy takes the first shot. Tracy is an independent journalist on Substack and he's a so-called left heretic. 
a nation writer turned snarky online contrarian that takes on the liberal establishment. Tracy says that Donald Trump broke the brains of liberal-minded journalists, turning them into unreliable activist crusaders. I have so many questions for you, but to clear the air, I have to tell you that in preparation for this interview, I went down the rabbit hole of listening to Rage Against the Machine, and I can't okay. get these fucking songs out of my head, and I, and I resent you for it. I apologize for getting Rage Against the Machine stuck in your head, unless you might perversely enjoy that. For people who don't know, the reason why I've been listening to Rage Against the Machine is Tom Morello has a new subscriber-exclusive newsletter with the New York Times because New York Times, sort of chief outlet for raging against the American machine, obviously. Are you excited to get your sort of weekly dose of the gospel of musical freedom and workers' rights from Tom Morello in the New York Times? I'm excited to fight the power by (laughs) consuming that newsletter sent directly to my inbox weekly, courtesy of the New York Times. I don't know how else one might fight the power, but subscribe to that newsletter. (laughs) I don't even have to say much to highlight the irony in that. I don't even blame him. It's a very old story of people who start out as radicals in their youths ending up becoming mainstream down the line as their ideas succeed in kind of penetrating into the popular consciousness, and yet they kind of cling to this pretense of radicalness and edginess that is just, at a certain point, becomes absurd. The other person that you brought up in your Substack article on this subject, perhaps the most cringy of the bunch, is Bruce Springsteen, whose music I do really like and I did really grow up with. What's happened to the boss? Well, me too. I'm from New Jersey. I've grown up with Bruce Springsteen. My parents are, you know, among the kind of quintessential diehard middle-aged Bruce Springsteen fans. But, you know, Bruce Springsteen, you know, for decades now has been the in-house entertainment for the Democratic National Committee. (laughs) I mean, there's a reason why at the uh, Democratic convention in 2020, the virtual convention, he performed for Joe Biden and he was, did campaign events for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. You know, it's fine. Some people are just kind of normie liberals in their advanced age, but that's all the more reason not to look at them as kind of subversive agents of overthrowing the existing political order or something. They're just part of it. And so if you can understand that and recognize that and still enjoy their music for its you know, sheer musicality, which I still do with Bruce Springsteen, and even to some extent Tom Morello. I mean, I, I actually like Tom Morello's collaborations with Bruce Springsteen. It's you know, decent music, but I don't absorb that music and think that I'm somehow fighting the power. I think that I'm just experiencing the output of powerful figures who are, you know, (laughs) benefiting from this exalted kind of cultural and political status that they've achieved. So as long as you kind of drop the pretension of radicalism, I don't really have much of a problem with it at all. I just think if you maintain this patina of kind of radical edginess, then you're almost making yourself look foolish. And it's kind of culminated now with Tom Borello joining the New York Times and <laughs> even sitting for an official photo shoot where he's raising his fist to the camera to promote <laughs> the newsletter. I mean, I can't even try to parody it because it speaks for itself. Mm. <laughs> so I wanted to transition a little bit to the reason why I bring up this whole thing anyways is because I want to talk about media criticism, media critique, and distrust of media that 
that a lot of people are quite worried about. But maybe to get us situated, I think a lot of people, oh, I'm thinking especially of Jacob Segal in the tablet, called you a left heretic. Personally, I have a fondness for left heretics, even if I don't fully agree. I usually agree sort of 75% of the time, and then we'll quibble over emphasis or some more fundamental ideological pieces. But can you tell me a little bit about this label? And like, maybe when you saw this article, I guess it was about a year ago now, like, does that kind of label make sense to you? Well, I would certainly never go around proclaiming myself to be a left heretic. That would be a bit pompous. (laughs) I mean, maybe you can take bits and pieces of my analysis or reporting or whatever and kind of fit that into some mm-hmm. ideological paradigm. And, you know, that's that's fine to do. And maybe it's plausible. But I do think that in that article in Tablet, which was very interesting, Jacob Siegel did get to a real kind of phenomenon within the media landscape, which is that there are certain people who had in an earlier era, like in a pre-2016 era, just been regarded as more or less kind of conventionally on the left or kind of uncontroversially on the left who later, as they were reacting to events or as conditions changed, ended up with kind of an angle of analysis that could appear to some as this wild and inflammatory heterodoxy and could even be seen as kind of caping for the right or something, which I don't think it ever was. I mean, I think in that article, they people are mentioned like, you know, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, um, Angela Nagel, Maybe Lee Fang, if I'm Lee not mistaken. Fong, yeah. So, you know, as I was growing into a, an adult with kind of autonomous political p- opinions, I had always gravitated toward the left kind of instinctually. But, you know, as I think back on it, you know, I was gravitating toward the left during a time when George W. Bush was in office, when like the Christian right were the chief moralizers and the chief censors, when the security establishment was intervening in domestic politics on behalf of, you know, starting a war in Iraq, for example. And when the prevailing ethos in the media was this kind of stodgy and uh, untenable kind of dogma of objectivity. So that was like, I don't know, early to late 2000s. Today, all those things are just drastically different. So of course I would have to respond to events and kind of recalibrate. And if people find that recalibration to be some kind of thoroughgoing ideological upheaval, so be it. To me, it's just reacting as honestly as I can to what's before me. And I think probably the other people mentioned in the article would say the same. Although Siegel, I think, was correct to kind of identify this kind of uh, coterie of media figures as sharing something in common, maybe in sensibility and just skepticism toward the kind of ascendance of kind of left liberal cultural political uh, hegemony and not being also kind of cowed into apologizing every time they put out a tweet or an, ar- or an article or something that could be construed as somehow, you know, secretly uh, right wing. And I think, I think a lot of that was born specifically of the changes that were ushered in by the Trump era. And we're still kind of living with the after effects of that. From that article and just from following the work of these folks for a while, it does seem to me that there's a certain set of kind of ideological principles that sort of coheres the people that are here, although not like totally firmly, a little bit loosely, but the kind of old school liberalism, definitely the focus on free speech, civil liberties, like of yourself and Glenn and, you know, Lee Fong's kind of focus on money in politics and class as a kind of defining issue. 
a little bit of the kind of like Chapo, Trap House, Amber Frost, Thomas Frank, kind of like anti-meritocracy, anti-education, not anti, but you know what I mean, where it's like an, an embrace of vulgarity. Anti-credentialism, like, maybe. Yeah, totally. That That's the right word. So that menu that I've sort of laid out for you, does that kind of make sense to you? Well, I mean, I do think those tendencies you outlined there probably do cohere into sort of a tentative arrangement for people of a instinctually left liberal mindset to confer amongst themselves and think that they've come up with some sort of reasonable critique for why current liberal hegemony seems to be going astray or why it has these excesses and why it is often leveraged to enforce conformity of thought. I mean, I think the surveillance point is actually really significant. You know, my formative political experience growing up, I'm 33, right? So my formative political experience growing up was the Iraq war and the construction of the post 9-11 surveillance regime. And I associated that with understandably the reigning you know, Republican administration and their kind of democratic enablers. That was sort of how I self-conceptualized the left versus right dichotomy in a reaction to that series of events that was in front of me and that I was immersed in. And now the contours of that have shifted. I mean, the people who demanding censorship, demanding surveillance of different kinds, demanding intervention by the security state apparatus into domestic political affairs. The people demanding that and implementing those measures are themselves often left liberals. So when I'm accused of heterodoxy or accused of being a contrarian, I could just as easily argue that I'm carrying forth the same sort of rough principles that I had been inculcated with when I first started being aware of politics. If you're new to the program, say you're coming from the Harbinger Network, which we just joined, or maybe you're a fan of Michael Tracy's, let me tell you a little bit about Darts and Letters. We're a show that is brought to you by Cited Media, which is a partnership between Comcast and Viacom. If you'd like to give us feedback, send us a letter. We've got a post office box somewhere in Panama. I'll link it in the show notes. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button, because we've got more great content coming soon. Like next week's episode, Eight Cars to Buy This Christmas, presented by Toyota. Okay, what we're actually about, we're about bringing independent voices to critique our corporate elites and our academic ones. We're a show that looks at the ideas that run our world, whether we like it or not. So if you like this episode, subscribe. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, back to Michael Tracy and back to that question of trust. Like I said, over half of Americans don't trust the media. It's funny because, and I was telling your, your producer this, but if I got a call from a pollster and they asked me the same question that they pose in these surveys, meaning, do you or do you not have trust in the media or do you have faith in the media or however exactly they word it, I would say no. And I'm a member of the media in some sense, right? I mean, I'm at least enough of a media worker that I make my living from it, right? And yet I would still respond in the negative. And so I can't blame the general public for coming to the same conclusion that I do about the media just kind of as an overall entity. And of course, when you're talking about the media as an overall entity, that requires overgeneralization. Because I think even most people who would say no, including myself to that question, nonetheless can see that they're individual journalists or maybe individual news stories or individual offerings by the media that they do trust and they do find reliable. But taken as a collective, the media has kind of relinquish so much of its credibility. And, and so people are responding rationally to that. I mean, I don't know how you can live through, have lived through Russiagate, right? 
where there was a period in 2017, even 2018 or 19, where virtually every day, sometimes multiple times a day, the New York Times or the Washington Post would come out with a bombshell scoop that was blasted across Twitter and then led every nightly news broadcast and was kind of aggregated by all the main uh, news sites. And it was about some kind of marginal development in one of the many strands of the Russiagate story. So, for example, it would come out that, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions had uh, lied about his meetings with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. And that would lead all the news broadcasts, right? I mean, the bombshell stories coming from the New York Times and the Washington Post were not bombshells in their own right, necessarily. It was because they were drip, drip, drip installations of a narrative that was going to culminate in the revelation that Trump or the Trump campaign had actually colluded or conspired with Russia, right? That whole premise was falsified later on. So why would you have any trust in the media as a whole if as a whole it demonstrated that it was able to apply no discernment whatsoever in its coverage of that critical story, which was the dominant story in the United States vis-a-vis national politics for like three years? And I mean, before that, going back to sort of your own political upbringing and really mine as well, I mean, we're talking about the era of the war on terror, the growth of the surveillance state, the Iraq war, and the financial crisis, which each one after the other was a case of just massive kind of media bungling. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about kind of that story too, and how it relates to the Colin Powell death and like what you've seen of the reaction and what you've thought of the reaction in the mainstream media. Well, I mean, Colin Powell, as you probably know, was maybe the critical figure in the Bush administration in selling the invasion of Iraq, not necessarily orchestrating it militarily, but putting forth a public case for the war in Iraq, which he was dispatched to do at the UN in February of 2003 at the, the UN Security Council when he delivered the speech basically proclaiming Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and that you know time was of the essence and the world needed to rally around the United States and invade and take out this imminent threat. And yet what happens now on the Powell's death is that he's just venerated. I mean, he's exalted into this kind of beatified saintly status where you have obituaries that might mention that Powell was integral in bringing about the most disastrous U.S. foreign policy misadventure in at least modern history, or, you know, know, post-Vietnam. But it'll kind of, you know, apply a lot of nuance and say, for all his faults, he was a straightforward guy and he loved his family and, and on and on and on. And I'm not even the kind of person who says the instant a public figure dies, you have to just be as vicious and nasty as possible for, like, recreational purposes. But you should at least be journalistically fair-minded about why this individual is even of public note anyway. It's not because he had a nice family. He was Secretary of State during this disastrous period for U.S. foreign policy and had a personal role in facilitating the Iraq war that is still reverberating today in a whole kind, in all, all different kinds of ways. And maybe the only person who could have stopped it, right? I mean, perhaps not, but he could have tried at least. He was certainly well positioned to do so. And why is Powell being venerated? Because Donald Rumsfeld just died too over the summer. And Rumsfeld was not nearly as venerated upon his death as Powell is. Powell is venerated for a very simple reason, which is that once he left the Bush administration, he became a public advocate for electing Democrats. He endorsed Obama in 2008 and gave him like national security bona fides. He then uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden. He became 
an anti-Republican because he, you know, he loathed Trump, even though Powell had himself been a Republican and was recruited to run for the Republican nomination in 1996. And so what does that tell you about the media's priorities? Well, it tells you that they are willing to subordinate complicity in the worst foreign policy disaster of recent times to sounding the right partisan notes. That's what they're saying is morally uh, superior. And I think that's a really warped moral calculus. Some of my reservations or critiques of media critique, to put it kind of crudely, and I think one of my concerns here, it's not on substance. It's not on that anything that you've said or that, you know, Glenn or Matt or Lee Fong might say is wrong, but it, it's a question of kind of emphasis, I guess. And like, sometimes I can feel that the f inordinate focus on kind of like media hypocrisies or media errors becomes kind of this like thin ideology and this lens through which to see like all of politics. And, you know, think of a show like Breaking Points, which I really quite like, but in a way, like when you start seeing all issues through that lens and under the banner of sort of like being kind of an anti-elitist, but all you're talking about is Barry Weiss or what the latest Dave Chappelle special was or what individual and like institutional pathologies you see in the New York Times, it, it becomes kind of like an elite cloistered sort of gossipy Twitter brain discourse sometimes that for the average person is a little bit overwhelming and kind of irrelevant, especially when put up against questions like the financial crisis or the Iraq war or big sort of structural concerns. When I see kind of a little like kind of gossipy Twitter brain stuff constantly from a lot of these people that we've been talking about. I know what you mean in terms of people who don't seem to ever produce their own genuine thoughts about a subject. It's always a thought kind of catered to what they believe the media is doing wrong in its coverage of a subject, right? So like, what do you actually think? You know, so I do you know what you mean, but I think, you know, if I were to just kind of speculate as to why that impression might be garnered by you as to this kind of crudely defined group of people, it's that, you know, when you're in the media and you're kind of operating from a bit of an outsider role, but you do nonetheless have insight into how the media works. Like I'm not employed by any mainstream media outlet at this point, but I've written for, you know, major newspapers and magazines and stuff. And I wrote, I, I worked for a time at, you know, one of the biggest uh, progressive news outlets, the Young Turks. I've met a lot of journalists over the years. So I kind of know, I have a little bit of more direct insight into how the media works kind of mechanistically, right? And so therefore when I see coverage blind spots or when I see bad analysis, I'm not really reacting to those observations solely because it's bad on its own terms for the media to engage in bad analysis. No, it's bad because you're not covering the country properly or you're not putting out correct information that will make people, uh, enable people to form their own reasoned judgments about real issues. Like, I mean, a great example is the Afghanistan withdrawal last summer. It's kind of of a, a different tilt, right? But all of a sudden, Biden actually following through on what supermajority of the American public wanted to do which is withdraw from Afghanistan. And what his predecessor, a Republican, had you know, ostensibly attempted to do, with withdraw from Afghanistan. All of a sudden, that became the most damaging scandal of his entire tenure as president thus far. And that only happened because of the media narrative, right? So I would actually argue that the media criticism there was extremely necessary because if you're creating a set of incentives whereby a president for once actually following through on a commitment to end a misbegotten foreign intervention becomes this major scandal because of some logistical problems along the way, then that's horrible for how political actors kind of 
calculate their moves in, in the domain of foreign policy. What I try to do is I strive to focus on stuff that has some connection to a real world harm, uh, more so than just gossip for its own sake or transient Twitter controversy, right? So I, I know what you mean in terms of the frivolity that sometimes this kind of hyperemphasis on media criticism can seem to project. But at least what I strive to do is to connect it to something, just some guy on the street that I happen to encounter would recognize actually in some way affects him. Right. I see what you're saying. So what do you think is kind of new about this? Because on some level, I'm not that surprised by any of it. Like the media critique, if you're an old school leftist, you see mainstream media sort of like fundamentally representing elite capitalist interests. And regardless of whatever sort of culture war they're stoking or like what the issue is about Dave Chappelle's special and what we can and cannot say about it, it's kind of beside the point that the media is always this way. Um, and regardless of what sort of narrow band of critique there is, like to put it in kind of like Chomsky terms, like there's lots of active disagreement on the media, just never about fundamental questions. So is anything sort of different now? Like that sort of thesis is essentially from the 80s and before that even. What's changed? What's the same for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think as you rightly point out, there's nothing particularly new about media criticism. I mean, if you go look at old issues of The Village Voice, right, where Alexander Coburn was writing columns at one point and, and others, I mean, it was pretty much just a media critique column. It was, you know, week after week, it was just lashing into the New York Times because they didn't cover Israel-Palestine properly or whatever they were, carrying water for some Democratic politician. So this goes back ages. It's just that what's happened now, and it's kind of fuzzed up the situation, is that the alt-media kind of sensibility that was embodied by an outlet like the Village Voice back in the 80s, that's now become almost the mainstream sensibility. So it's not so much alt-media versus other media anymore. It's a fusion of it all together in this kind of shape-shifting melange of media consensus. And I think, you know, social media has a lot to do with that in that it's kind of blurs everything together as kind of one singular media stream of consciousness, right? And so I do think it, it actually requires a bit more perspicacity as to what media critique you're doing. It's not a matter of just like, oh, we're the outsider village voice, we're criticizing the New York Times anymore, it's this dichotomistic relationship. No, it's that the New York Times now can contain village voice style output, right? I mean, it goes back to the New York, uh, Tom Morello becoming a newsletter <laughs> contributor, right? I mean, that would have been unthinkable years ago at the New York Times. It's more of like a case-by-case -case thing, I mm -hmm. guess, now, because even some of these, these more kind of uh, outright activist publications, they have a lot of mainstream influence and the mainstream outlets take cues from them. So I think it, everything's just got a lot more scrambled. And I, I don't think it's the case anymore that if you're talking about, you know, the Chomskyan kind of generation of media consensus, that consensus doesn't get formed in exactly the same way anymore, just as like a byproduct of raw capital or something. I think it's, it's a bit more diffuse in terms of how that gets constructed. And it doesn't lend itself to like a holistic theory as easily anymore. So you have to focus on individual instances of kind of like bad conduct or herd mentality. Yeah, it's just a little bit more, more hazy. Uh, so I wouldn't purport to have some kind of overarching diagnosis of it per se. I would just want to note that it doesn't lend itself to those sort of 80s style critiques anymore. The ideologies have changed, the cultures have changed, but 
as a counterpoint, you could say like the fundamental premises and principles haven't, right? Like American sort of forever wars and imperial misadventures, you know, Biden was critiqued because he stepped back from that, at least in one domain. I don't know about all of them. And so I guess the Chomsky critique and sort of the old school left critique of media would say, don't focus too much on what the narrow bands of media debate are today if the fundamental kind of material and structural questions aren't being asked, aren't being challenged, then very little has changed. And I think when you look at Afghanistan, you could say very little has changed, at least in the media consensus. So why do you think it's different? Well, no, I mean, I I think it's true what you say about not getting overly fixated on the narrow bands of kind of day-to-day partisan rancor right, uh, in terms of how you conceptualize what's going on in the country around you or what the media is is feeding you. I just, my point is that the the media landscape now is so diffuse mm-hmm. and you can have pretty significant influence by just developing a sizable Twitter presence, which then gets picked up by media outlets and, you know, reshared and maybe then other newspapers or websites will write articles about what you've said. That just wasn't possible in the 80s. And I don't know that ca- you can explain that phenomenon purely by reference to like capital, right? I think it's maybe something, I, I, I guess, theoretically, there is an argument that the algorithms created by these for-profit tech companies actually are founded in capital. So all I'm saying is it's not it's not nearly as, as straightforward. I don't know that that theory could explain why you have kind of left liberal cultural axioms is so seamlessly absorbed into the mainstream uh, media consciousness. You could say that it's because they're friendly to capital, that they're easily co-opted, or that they're a way in which to throw a bone to the left. Let's distract people with, with this, and then they won't ask about this. Right? That's what a lot of people say about like greenwashing or wokewashing or any of these kind of like culturally left status quo institutions. <sighs> Maybe, but I do think, you know, that, for example, queer theory becoming pretty mainstream accepted concept within, you know, national media, you have somebody like Kimberly Crenshaw, right, who is the founder of intersectionality. I think she is a socialist of some kind, right? I mean, so even if maybe the the tip of the iceberg of her ideological paradigm is what's been embraced, it still is giving huge amplification to somebody who is a socialist, right? And if you were to be interested in following through on her prescriptions for society, you would come up with socialist recommendations. So there there are more entry points into mainstream consciousness for people like that than there were in the past. Right. Chomsky himself would often be the, the main example of how dissenting voices were excluded from the mainstream consciousness, right? I don't think, and I think Chomsky actually gets a fair amount of exposure nowadays, which is good. It's just not as cloistered as it was when he was formulating that original argument. And people who self-identify as socialists, like, you know, Bernie Sanders or AOC, yeah, they generate a lot of scorn from the media at times, but they also get some pretty fair coverage. You know, I did a big article on Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign and, you know, you would go and like every other night he'd be on Jimmy Fallon, you know, yucking it up or he'd have, you know, pretty fair coverage at a lot of the time in the mainstream outlets. It was definitely a big improvement from 2016 when he was, I think, more thoroughly maligned. And I think, again, that because that there was a, there's a diffusion of media control and people of more socialist or left wing bent do exert more power than they once did, given that kind of diffused 
structure. And so they're able to get their even anti-capitalist ideas out there. I mean, Antifa, right? And I know even using the term Antifa is controversial because what does it mean exactly, right? But, you know, the left-wing activists contingent that were that at least to some extent self-identify as Antifa or, or sympathetic with, with it, they got hugely positive coverage, generally speaking, from every non-conservative media outlet last summer. To be critical of Antifa was taken to be that you were a pro-Trump or that you were staunchly right-wing, right? So they actually were able to maneuver themselves to generate lots of positive attention uh, despite having ideas that you could regard as fairly radical, whether you know it's abolishing the police or abolishing capitalism writ large, right? So, so I, I, I do think that's a function of how of the the way that this media landscape is kind of newly oriented, such that it's nowhere near as exclusionary. That was Michael Tracy, independent journalist and online shitposter. I say that with a certain degree of fondness. You can find his writing on Substack, and you can follow him on Twitter at mtracy. You're not going to agree with a lot of what he says, but I think Michael is really worth a follow. And a special little message to our Patreon subscribers. Next week, we'll have the full unedited video of my conversation with Michael. That's at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. So if you want to see that, subscribe today. Robert McChesney is a towering figure in the world of media research. He's a professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and he's written a bunch of books criticizing the corporate media. Books like Rich Media, Poor Democracy. Professor McChesney also co-founded the national media reform organization, Free Press. Robert's work looks at the political economy of news. Reading his work, you don't leave with the impression that mainstream reporters just suck. The critique is a lot deeper than that. Well, it is a structural criticism. The point isn't that individual reporters don't matter. They do matter. And there are some great journalists working in a difficult context who do great work who deserve the acclaim they get, hopefully, mm-hmm. and not to get fired, which often happens. <laughs> uh, do that. But the point simply is in the United States, because the system has been so ingrained in our heads that this is the only way a media system can look, and it's the best media system possible, the assumption is if you're criticizing journalism, you're also criticizing the people who are doing it because that's the only variable that counts. And journalists internalize that too. Journalists say, hey, don't, you know, you're blaming me. And so then they say, you're, you have some crazy conspiracy theory that we're all getting together to tell lies. And I think for that reason, political economists and critical media theorists, journalism scholars say, wait a second. No, we don't think like you guys know the truth and you're consciously lying. That is nonsense. We think there are structural pressures on the institution of journalism that make it very easy to go in the direction you go, and you're, it's constantly reinforced, and it seems natural. And it's not simply a matter of ownership and profit motive and advertisers influencing what you cover and won't cover. Usually, that's a subtle influence. It's not like the hard days yet the publisher has to smash his fist on the table and say, this company's advertising here. You don't cover that story. Or an owner has to say, hey, I... I hate unions. You heard <laughs> trash that union uh, in your story. That happens sometimes, but not often. More often than not, in the important place it happens is how certain values are internalized. And journalists who succeed internalize those values comfortably and they rise to the top. And if you're uncomfortable with those values, you usually get weeded out along the way. And that's how professions work. And that's how the profession of journalism works. When you uh, look at the way journalism works in the United States, the key question is like how you frame things. 
And in traditional journalism, the range of legitimate debate tends to be the range of legitimate debate among the powerful in the country. Now, for a lot of people who are mainstream people in the United States, that's not a problem because they think the legitimate range of the debate is from the center of the Democratic Party or the liberal edge to the right wing of the Republican Party. Anything outside of that's wacky. But as almost all research shows, that is really a very flawed way to determine what legitimate news is and what's how you cover it, who you take seriously. Because the United States, for example, we have absolutely no debate in our political mainstream over the amount of military spending. It is off limits. It's, and it's therefore never covered in our media. They vote for these $750 trillion uh, military budgets the same way you would floss your teeth before we spend <laughs> But it's never debated in our news media. Now, why is that? Why is the military spending never debated in our news media? You know, God, they're debating down to the penny a welfare bill or something, but this is off limits. Well, it's because the, the elite in this country, in both parties and on Wall Street, are all fine with military spending. It's a big part of the system. They want it to go. They understand its importance for individual companies and for the economy as a whole. So there's no room for debate. It's off limits. So a journalist who wants to make an issue out of that, say, hey, let's, hey, boss, let's talk about this absurd amount of military spending we're doing in this country when we've got all these needs over here. That journalist would be regarded as a kook, and that journalist would either leave or get with the program. So, and there's a lot more to it, but I mean, I think the weakness is its uh, reliance on official people in power to set the terms of debate, and they're the credible sources. And that sort of sets what you're allowed to talk about. And that explains a lot about American news media coverage. I wanted to ask you about kind of like what I'm seeing as an emerging kind of thesis of some corners of kind of online media criticism. And I think it was sort of really crafted by Matt Taibbi. He wrote a book called Hate Inc., which in some ways is a love letter to Chomsky. It has an interview with him. So I wanted to ask you about that kind of thesis of basically like hyper-partisanship being as this new kind of selling tool and the sort of like balkanization of the media. A lot of people like point to this as a potential cause of like the trust kind of deficit. I mean, Michael Tracy, who we interviewed on this program, points to this like number one thing, like, and in corners of the left do too, they talk about sort of like Trump derangement syndrome and anti-Trumpism and the sort of like partisanship of media being as something that has, in a sense, like eroded the trust of the mainstream. How do you feel about that thesis? I think what uh, Michael Tracy said really puts the cart in front of the horse. I think this is where the political economic analysis is so valuable. For most of American history, into the 1960s, local newspaper revenues that pay for all the local newspapers and all the journalism across the country outside of Washington and New York, all of that accounted for 1% of GDP, which is a huge amount of money. I mean, that'd be over $200 billion today if it was 1% of GDP. And starting in the 1960s, the percentage of GDP accounted for by local newspapers uh, has plummeted. And now it's under one-tenth of 1% of GDP. So it is under $20 billion. There's virtually large chunks of places in the United States that now are called news deserts. They have absolutely no news media covering them whatsoever. And most of the rest have one room, one newsroom competing. It's on the way out of business. It's struggling. It's in collapse because the, the commercial model of journalism is disintegrated. It no longer exists. And as a result, there's no journalism left much around the country. Well, this is the context in which propaganda, fake news, so-and-so prosper. They thrive. But it also means 
for the national cable networks in particular, you know, this change in journalism affects them too. And I'll give you an anecdote that took place about 20 years ago to sort of understand what the situation is today. I was talking to a guy who had been the head of CNN in the late 90s and early zeros. And uh, CNN was a part of Time Warner Media Empire at the time. They wanted to meet the CEO of uh, Time Warner, Jerry Levin. And he just had the best year ever at CNN. I think the, the Clinton impeachment trials have been going on. They had big profits and huge revenues. And he went and he's going to get his bonus, he thought, you know, and be celebrated for the great job he did. And instead, Levin and his uh, crew said, you know, you had a good year, sure, but look how much money Fox News made. And Fox News had just started, and they had much lower revenues, but their profits were greater because uh, their costs are so much lower. And the guy who was at CNN said to the head of Time Warner, yeah, if you want us to do make profits like Fox News, we're going to have to like get rid of all our reporters, get rid of our payroll. And basically, the, the, the bosses looked at him and sort of smiling, nodding their heads like, hey, you finally get it. <laughs> the genius of Fox News, from a business perspective, was what Rupert Murdoch figured out and Roger Ailes understood was that if you don't hire journalists, you don't actually report on anything. You don't actually do anything remotely considered news. But basically, you identify a niche of the audience and you give them their partisan message and just get a few celebrity blowhards on air to talk about the same talking points all day long. Your costs are cut to the bone, but your revenues won't decline. So that's all profits. The genius of Fox News was saying you can do a news channel without doing any journalism. Mm. Then the other state cable channels have all picked that up too. MSNBC. They've occupied exactly. their niche. MSNBC. So this is the context for that hyperpartisanship. It makes perfect sense if you can't you don't do journalism, it's not profitable. You don't have anything to give people value, like, hey, we actually covered what's going on in the Department of Commerce. Here's a, what's going on. We've done some research. Then you might as well just pick a side and make your money off them. And I should emphasize why that is, because people might say, why is that? It's because advertising has left journalism. Journalism is always supported by advertising. Before advertising, it was a public good. You couldn't make money on it in the 19th century until advertising came along. Then advertising made it very lucrative. Now, advertising, which provided 80% of the revenues for most journalism, if not 100% in broadcast, has pretty much left the field altogether, especially in newspapers and online, and has left journalism with no revenue base. That's why it's collapsing and why it's never coming back as a commercial undertaking. So looking at like possible solutions, I mean, one thing that you've been instrumental in through free press and, and other efforts is really kind of the role of media reform and media activism to change these sort of structural and political dynamics. I mean, but one of the things that's really interesting in, in rich media, poor democracy, at least this is before free press, but one of the things that, I, that really stood out to me was the way that you talked about how much of the left doesn't really focus or care about media reform. And in fact, it's the right that it puts a considerable amount of more energy into it. Now, this was the late 90s. You, you wrote this early 2000s. In what way has that story changed at all? Are we still seeing kind of those dynamics or is the left sort of catching up on this? Well, the train has changed a whole lot since 1998 or 1999. The right wing, I think starting in the 1970s, the sort of Barry Goldwater, Koch brothers, Ronald Reagan, and to the right of that, that crowd has been obsessed with media. Mm. And they've put lots of resources into 
creating right-wing media, creating right-wing college newspapers, criticizing and delegitimizing mainstream media endlessly so people would you know, disregard what it said unless it was favorable to them. Then they, they finally get a story <laughs> right. They understood that that was a really important place they had to fight to win uh, if they wanted to take power in the United States. That was an important battlefield. Mainstream Democrats are probably pretty content with the media. It wasn't that big of an issue. Progressives to their left and people on the left had a very critical attitude towards mainstream journalism. For uh, They saw it as the voice, basically, of the elites and maybe at times the liberal elite, but still Wall Street and moneyed interests. But, you know, where is the right? Their idea was basically to discipline, criticize and jawbone the mainstream media so they'd be nicer to the right. They they accepted the New York Times. They were just going to like keep beating them up so the right would get more conservatives in there, take conservative ideas more seriously, make them more legitimate. So they did that. And then they created their whole pool of reporters uh, at Dartmouth and other places that they then fed to media. So there'd be a whole body of conservatives, much like they did with the court system, getting all these judges they put in these courts. So they have a farm system to find people to put uh, keep promoting up to the Supreme Court eventually and take over the entire judicial system. And so they had the same a similar strategy of journalism, and it was very effective. It worked really well. Now, the irony, of course, is that that whole debate sort of gone now because there's not much journalism left to have a liberal bias or any sort of, you know, from the ideas of the right. They've really won their battle, and they just dismiss anything from that's, that's not that they don't control, it's just fake news. It's gotten to that point. For the progressives, it was never a point of jawboning journalists to do it better. You do some of that. But ultimately, you realize that the pressures, the structural pressures that journalists face are such that if they don't internalize certain worldviews, they're just not going to last long. They've got to just be comfortable with what they're doing. And so you had to change the structures. You had to create nonprofit, non-commercial media. You had to do a strengthening unions for journalists uh, is another. There's a variety of things. Then you can have higher expectations for journalism and press them and hope to get some change in that sort of environment. Uh, but also you needed to criticize journalism thoroughly. So people who were left to consume that as their way to understand the world would say, wait a second, this is a criticism. How can I see why this is wrong? Where does all that energy go? Because I mean, like certainly my kind of political upbringing, I guess you'd say, is through that alternative media landscape of Democracy Now! and you know Bill Moyers to a certain extent and others. But that's not what the right-wing sort of flack machine did. I mean, they do some media criticism, but it seemed like the energies there are really about creating a vibrant alternative media. Am I right there? I mean, what was kind of the orientation there towards, say, the New York Times? Was there a parallel left organization that was about pressuring the mainstream and sort of capturing these elite institutions, at least making them softer to the left? The closest thing that came to that was an excellent group that still is going strong called Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting based on New York Fair. They started in the late 80s. Their whole mission was to criticize elite media media in general, but especially the New York Times and Washington Post and their coverage of issues and sort of critique it and show what the problems are with it and the biases in it and what the actual story should have been if they'd done good journalism. And uh, they they carved a really great niche during that. And I should, I'm on their board now and I've been a charter subscriber uh, to their publication Extra. And so I think that's the left energy went, they were also not a conspiracy theory. They would say to journalists, look, 
we want you to get this right. They would organize campaigns to write or email later uh, journalists and editors saying, here's the evidence you got this story wrong. You know, we just want you to know we'd like it if you would, you know, redo it or print a correction, but at least bring it to attention and be respectful. They did their best to do their jawboning politely from the left, but of course, bumping up against the structural constraints. One way to understand the structural constraints, and again, this is almost like a history class because there's so little journalism left today that seems like describing some like czarist Russia or something. <laughs> but one way to understand the constraints is the journalist Gary Webb. Um, Gary Webb is a reporter for the San Jose Mercury News who broke the story for how the CIA was working with crack dealers to import crack to pay for the Contra program in Central America in the 1980s. No small part of the crack epidemic in American cities could be attributed to CIA activities trying to raise funds for its Contra army in Central America. Now, this story, as you can imagine, this blows up the entire narrative on Central America. And then basically the elite, the establishment came after him and that we've got to take him out. So the Pentagon, CIA, uh, and their friends at the Washington Post and New York Times finally came up with how he had fudged some of his sources. I mean, stuff that doesn't stand up to anything, but enough. Uh, and the, oh, this guy really just can't be trusted. He's a weird guy. That eventually, the San Jose Mercury News renounced the story, withdrew it, said, we sorry we ran it. There were problems with that we shouldn't have. So he lost all his institutional support because the San Jose Mercury News didn't want to be a pariah in the world of Pulitzer Prizes, the New York Times and the Washington Post. So it backed down, it didn't stand behind its reporter, even though it should have. There was no reason not to. But I mean, the point here is that probably a lot of reporters thought, why is Gary Webb doing this crazy story in the first place? Why are you going after the CIA? We don't, you know, it doesn't make sense. But if there were any that were saying, hey, I really want to get on the CIA beat and find out what they're doing with all this money we give them, the Gary Webb incident would probably make them internalize the idea, well, that's not our story. Let someone else do that one. Uh, and that's how internalizing values takes. I say, you get one person who's out of hand who gets disciplined, that sends ripples that will last for decades. And then the kind of like internalized censorship, you don't need anything heavy handed. And that's the best type of censorship by far. That was Professor Robert McChesney, author, activist, and professor of communication. He's written a number of important books about our corporate media, and you can find those on our show notes. He also co-founded the media reform group Free Press. They're running a number of campaigns right now that you might want to check out. Campaigns around concentration, media access, local news, internet regulation, free speech, and other important issues. You can find them at freepress.net. Also, if you want to learn more about the political economy of media, and especially how we might actually publicly fund the media, I'd recommend a previous episode. Episode 14, How to Save the News, with Victor Picard. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Epilonio. Show notes are by Dave Mosscrop. Marketing from Ian Soudon. Theme song and outro by Mike Barber. Graphic design by Dakota Coop. And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. Send us your feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca. This is a production of Cited Media, and we're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. The founding academic advisor of the program is Professor Alan Sands at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday. Mm-hmm.